John chapter 12. Uh, We're sort of in the middle of a conversation uh, between Jesus and uh, the crowd. Um, And I'll refer back to what we talked about last week in a little bit. But uh, I actually want to read a little bit of that, just so the main part of it. Verse 24, well, I'll pick up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, they must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Father, oh, sorry, bad eyes. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it, said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the light of the world into the world, that we might behold your glory, know truth, and have life. Send him here by the Spirit, that we might behold your glory in the Scriptures this morning so that we might know the truth more fully, that we might believe it more firmly and walk in it more completely. To the praise of your glorious grace, in Christ Jesus, our Savior and King, we pray. Amen. Some of you here have faced death. I've almost died, almost drowned twice, almost fell off a waterfall, That was the foolishness of youth. But I've never, I mean, those are events, those are moments. They sort of happen that you go, whew, glad that didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to be. It's something different to actually contemplate your impending death. It's in those moments, I imagine, that all kinds of fears and insecurities and hopes Arrives. Jesus, in this text, is contemplating his death. 
He knows it's coming. And He knows it's coming quickly. And He knows how it's coming. As we get a peek into, I think, what is going on in His heart as He thinks about this, uh, may we be encouraged as we think about life and as we think about death this morning. Our big idea is that Jesus hated His life to give us life. First part of it I want us to ponder is that is that Jesus hated His life in this world to glorify the Father. As I said already, that this is a continuation of this, this discussion, which is why I read a couple of extra verses. And there's that thing there, that's, that phrase that Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And commenting on that, D.A. Carson wrote, self must be displaced by another. The endless, shameless focus on self must be displaced by focus on Jesus Christ, who is the supreme revelation of God. That's how we ought to live. But Jesus is not called to focus on Himself so to speak. We see as Jesus applies this to himself that he has a different sort of focus than we are called to have. Jesus says in this moment, now my soul is troubled. This is the same word that we saw a few times in chapter 11 with regard to the death of Lazarus. Jesus is agitated Jesus is distraught and perhaps angry at what is happening or what is about to happen. Jesus is emotionally impacted by the inevitability of his death within a week. All who face death should be troubled. I think Jesus is the troubled heart in this uh, regard points us to this. It's not wrong for us to be troubled. We, unlike he, wonder, will our faith become sight? Will we experience the judgment? Will there be simply nothing? These are the things that probably cross our minds. We could ask some people here who have been on what they thought might have been deathbeds. What crossed your mind? What hopes and fears did you encounter there? But here's the thing. I kind of wonder how I'll die. Sometimes I think about that. But Jesus knows when he'll die. But he also, as this text indicates, how he will die. He will be lifted up, and that's pointing to the cross. Jesus knows how he will die. One of the worst methods of execution that humanity has ever come up, there's lots of unpleasant ways to die, but in terms of legal execution, among the worst. I think, uh, let's see, being drawn and quartered ranks pretty high up there too, but the duration is much shorter of the 
agony and the humiliation and everything that's associated with it. This week, if you were paying attention to the news, you heard that the Boston bomber has not only was convicted earlier, but now they have passed sentence, and he's now got the death penalty. And so now he has to sit in a cell, and he has to ponder the fact that his life may come to an end soon, or may not, depending on appeals processes and all of this sort of thing. Jesus knows there's no appeal. Jesus knows that it will not dangle out there for an interminable amount of time. He knows that it will be within a week. And he knows that it shall be upon the cross. But let us not think for a moment that it is the physical realities that make him tremble. As terrifying as they are to us. It is the fact that the real terror is that Jesus, who knew no sin as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, shall become sin and therefore redeem us from the curse. He is going to experience not merely physical torture and pain. He is going to experience the curse of God. Far more terrible than any crucifixion might possibly be in which we have no way to sort of process in our brains what that is about, what that is like. We have to go by the testimony of Scripture about its reality. For instance, in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus bore the curse. It's not just about physical death. It's about something far more terrifying that we don't understand on this side of it all. And Jesus, with a troubled heart, knowing this is coming, says to them, What shall I say? Father, save me? Perhaps they expected Jesus to, in this moment, ask for deliverance. To be rescued from his earthly dilemma. I imagine they did expect him to do that. Because isn't that what we would do? Save me from this hour. Deliver me from this pain, from these circumstances that I now experience. That's exactly what we would do. But Jesus doesn't do that. He is walking precisely what he talked. And what I mean by that is, Jesus did not love his soul But he hated his soul, which we talked about last week as a Hebrew idiom for um, loving less. He hated his soul in this world to deliver us. In other words, when he calls us to, to hate our souls in this world that we might find eternal life, He's not asking us to do something He hasn't already done. But we do it that we might receive eternal life. He does it to gain eternal life for us. Our eternal life is purchased by Christ when He forsakes His life, His soul, in this world because He believes there is something greater. He continues 
for this purpose. I have come to this hour. He came not to experience God's deliverance, but to be the means of God's deliverance. He lays it all out on the line. He basically says here, I have come to save and deliver, and that process means I must die. I started reading a book this weekend called Legend, and it's the story of uh, one of the first special forces rescue missions in Vietnam. I've never been on a rescue mission. But if you enter conflict as part of a rescue mission, you have to enter that conflict with the knowledge that you may die. In fact, uh, in, in, talk, in listening to interviews with Navy SEALs, the whole point of Hell Week for the Navy SEALs is to get them over the reality and to embrace the fact of the fear of death. Basically to bring them to that point where they're not afraid anymore, so they're free to act. But always knowing that they could die on any mission. So th- this is before the SEALs, this is Green Beret. But Jesus is not here facing the mere possibility or probability of his death. He is facing the fact and reality of his death. It is going to happen. It must happen if his people are to be saved. And instead of saying, save me, Father, he says, Father, glorify your name. Jesus is focused not on himself, not on what is going on in his own heart, but he's focused on the Father's glory, the glory that he will receive because he will be revealed as the Redeemer who has mercy upon the wicked and the ungodly and the helpless. Jesus' death is going to glorify the Father. That's what his prayer is in this moment. His sacrifice for us and the gift of the Spirit because of His ascension enable us to walk in a way that's similar to Jesus' example. Thursday. I think it was Thursday. I lost track of time. I'm not sure which day it was. I think it was Thursday. When I visited with George, he had been pretty non-responsive for a number of hours. And just as I'm getting ready to leave, he perks up. And a smile comes on his face. He's glad to see me. I got to say goodbye. Tell him I love him. And his final words to me were these. Glory to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, George was able to face his death the same way Jesus faced his death by saying, glory to God. It's possible, brothers and sisters, I've seen it. To give us life and to glorify the Father, Jesus hated his life in this world, which brings us to the second thing we need to consider as we think about Jesus' death, and that is this. Jesus' death is the judgment of Satan in the world. When Jesus dies upon the cross, it looks like He is the one who has been judged. He was judged by the Sanhedrin as a blasphemer. He was judged apparently by Pontius Pilate as a rebel, a, a, a rebel and troublemaker. It would look like Jesus had failed. It would look like cosmically Jesus had lost. 
In fact, indeed, it looked prior to the resurrection as if Jesus was the one who was condemned. And he had been condemned for us, not for himself. But we see his vindication in the resurrection. Now, here, before his death and resurrection, we see Jesus talking about that hour, and he says, now is the judgment of this world. For our Arminian brothers and sisters, just for a sec, if we think John 3.16 means that God so loves every single human being that he gives his life for the Son of God, we have the same meaning when we see world here. Do we understand it to mean that every single person is judged? No, we don't. But all those who are outside of Christ are judged. His death was the judgment of the world. The declaration that the world is guilty. Sin was judged and condemned in the death of Jesus Christ who became sin. This is what sin deserves. And so we see the cross of Christ working in one way for those whom God has chosen unto salvation, and it works in another way in the lives of those whom He has not. For all those who believe, because the Father draws them by the power of the Holy Spirit, to those who trust in Jesus and His work and abandon their own merit, the penalty has been paid by Christ, and so we can say it with Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are united to Christ Jesus. Good news. The price has been paid. The curse has been lifted. Rejoice! Rejoice! But for those who turn aside from Christ, who turn away from Him, who think nothing of Him, it is but one more grievous sin that is placed upon their account. In fact, the putting to death of Jesus is their rejection of the legitimate king that furthers their rebellion. Think for a moment, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is the judge of Israel. And he has been, I think, for about 40 years. And he's coming to the end of his time, and the people start to ask for a king like the nations. And Samuel, as the prophet of God, is, as you might note, uh, you know, understand, a little upset with this. He sees this, as uh, Mr. Wells did when his, the, the Wells report on Deflategate was questioned. He was upset. He took it personally. God has to speak to Samuel, not for the people, but for Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the, of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Their request for a king and the way they wanted it and what they wanted in a king meant that ultimately they were rejecting God as their king. The crucifixion is merely 
that on steroids. Because the true king has come. He has arrived, uh, you know, there on the um, Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, but the, the arrival into the city for the Passover celebration. He's been uh, praised. He's riding on the donkey. He's revealed as the Messiah and therefore the king, the rightful heir to David's throne. And what do they do? They kill him. They were rejecting God's anointed. They were trying to cast off his chains. They have rejected God as their ruler. This is their judgment. Not only that, but the ruler of this world will be cast out. His death is the first defeat of Satan. There's a question that I think naturally arises. Cast out of where? And I think as we look at other passages of Scripture, such as uh, Revelation 12 and uh, Jesus uh, giving the accounts, um, you know, when he casts out demons, he sees Satan falling. He's cast out of heaven. He's not cast out of the earth yet. One day he will be. Satan, along with the world, has been judged and condemned as a rebel. He is similar to, I'm going to mispronounce his name, to Snarniev, ah, the Boston bomber. He's not dead yet. He's in a cell, and he's waiting. The evil one, likewise, cast out of heaven, has a limited range of influence, He cannot destroy the people of God. He's limited. He's like a dog or a lion upon a chain. He has some influence, but he cannot destroy the children of God. In Colossians 2, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Actually, sorry, God the Father triumphant over them triumphed over them in Christ Jesus. So Jesus triumphed over Satan and the world for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of his sheep. There's two edges to the cross. One for salvation, one for judgment. When we think about Voss. We talked about Gerhardus Voss in Sunday school and the communicants class talked about him last week. We would say that the new age has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. In other words, Satan is active but limited until Jesus returns and his influence will come to an end. For he shall be cast into the lake of fire himself. So Jesus' death not only saved us, but condemned Satan and all those who are outside of Christ. Which brings us to the third thing that is important. Believe in the light to become light. You see, the Father responds, and this is going to hit different parts of this passage. Uh, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Glorify yourself. The Father responds to Jesus' prayer, and he says, uh, I have, and I will again. And he's most likely referring to the raising of Lazarus. 
because it talks specifically there about the Father glorifying himself. Okay, so it's most likely here referring to the raising of Lazarus, and he's going to glorify his name again with the death of his son. Problem was, not everybody heard this. John notes that some said they heard thunder, and others said they heard an angel speaking, but they're not really sure exactly what he said. And this is not a problem unique to this people in this passage of Scripture, but we also see it in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Yes, I'm reading 1 Samuel on my own devotions. As Samuel was offering up a burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. The Philistines are coming to destroy Israel. The Lord thunders. It throws them into confusion, and they basically end up being defeated. But what they heard was thunder. The unbelievers in that crowd also heard thunder. They didn't hear the voice of God. They interpreted it as thunder. Acts 22, Paul is speaking about his conversion on the road to Damascus. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so, it's just like that. What was obvious to Paul, and was obvious to Jesus and the disciples, was not obvious to the other people who were around who were living in unbelief. They heard thunder, or they weren't sure exactly what they heard. This reminds us that unbelief tends to distort our experiences, and therefore we also tend to distort His Word. The crowd still had questions, partially because they were distorting His Word. You see, they thought that the Messiah would live forever. And if there are any of those handouts still floating around, or maybe ask somebody who was in Sunday school to look at it if you, if you weren't here. On the bottom, it talks about how the Jews basically viewed history. You have creation and the fall, and then everything kind of continues up until Messiah comes, and then you have that age of prosperity and peace and glory and all that kind of stuff. They don't have this idea like, that we have because of what we find in the New Testament of while the, new, while the old age continues until the return of Jesus, the new age has begun already. So there's, we live in two ages right now, if you're a Christian. Okay. So they're just viewing this as Messiah will come and he'll live forever. They didn't understand, they didn't grasp a reality of a suffering Messiah. They hadn't factored, you know, Isaiah 53 into this mix. Okay. They don't understand all of the Scriptures. They understand part of the Scriptures. And so they're confused. Who is this Son of Man? Because Jesus, in verse 23, had called Himself the Son of Man. So they're like, who is this? Apparently they hadn't read Daniel. I don't know. But they're confused. And they don't see that Jesus is both the Messiah and the Son of Man. Now, Jesus does it again. We've talked about this a lot in the last couple of weeks. They ask a question, and Jesus doesn't really answer the question. 
who's the son of man? He doesn't go, I am. He doesn't say, let's take a look at Daniel 7. He doesn't say any of that. He talks about the light. (laughs) Jesus kind of takes a a turn, a curve on them, so to speak, but to drive home a point. This is not completely disconnected from what he has already said. I think it fits in exactly with what he said because they keep missing the point. Walk while you have the light. And then he says, believe in the light. And when he talks about the light, he wants them to think of things like Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And it's that that John picks up on in 1 John chapter 1, which we read earlier. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We saw earlier in John 1, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light, and as the light, this is meant again to communicate to them that Jesus is God. Because there is no other light but Him, but God. I am God. And He says, while you have the light, keep walking. Sort of one of those ongoing sorts of things. Walk while you have the light. This is not the time of rest. Nighttime is the time of rest. Judea in that day was very similar to Tucson in our day, or at least parts of Tucson in our day. By my neighborhood, there are no streetlights in my neighborhood. If, if I'm going to take a walk at night this time of year, not too wise sometimes, um, it's hard to see if there are snakes about unless there's a good moon, okay? because there's no lights. When you walk in darkness, you're not sure what you will come across. And sometimes if it's dark enough, you'll not be sure which way to go. And you take your, you may take your life in your own hands when you walk in the darkness. And sometimes you will be fortunate and not get hurt too bad. One night recently we had friends over. I had to go upstairs and deal with the kids and I figured, well, while I'm here, I'll go to the bathroom. So I go into our room, which the light was not on. And as I sort of made the turn to go from our bedroom into our master bath, I didn't make the turn well because I was in the dark. And I broke my toe, which still is an annoyance to me. When we walk in the dark, it should not surprise us when we trip and fall or stub our toe or any of these things. Jesus warns them to take advantage of the light to walk. In other words, he's saying to them, do not pass up on this opportunity to believe in the light. He's issuing a call to faith. Believe and keep believing in the light while you still have it. Now, He throws in a purpose clause there. Believe in order that you may become sons of light. 
Now, two things about this I want to say. First off, there's a, there's a shift in verb tense. This idea of believing is present tense, meaning you know, not just believe in an act, but keep believing kind of thing. But may become, just has that idea of, it's hard to, to kind of communicate it in English, but it has the, act, the idea of an act. Okay? We don't, there's no process by which we gradually become sons of light. It happens like that. When we believe with, a, with the kind of faith that keeps believing, we instantly become children of the light. This is referred to back in John chapter 1, that all who received him would receive... Ah, I don't want to goof it up. So, But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, the God who is the light, who is light. Paul also talks a little bit about this in some places. For instance, Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Because you are united to Christ who is the light, you now are also light, in other words. And he says, therefore, walk as children of light. Be who you are. You have a new identity in Jesus Christ, and so now live out of that identity instead of living out of the old identity, which was marred by darkness, in which you walked in evil ways. Now, if you believe in Him and you have been adopted by God and taken as His Son, walk that way. Live that way. In an awareness of His love and mercy upon you that you might show love and mercy to others. United to the light, we become children of the light and therefore we walk in the light by faith. That's part of the salvation side of the cross. Okay. Jesus knew when and he knew how he would die. But Jesus wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on the Father and he was focused on his people. He wanted the Father to glorify Himself as the Redeemer of His people. And He also wanted His people to know that His death brought judgment on Satan in the world so that we don't fear them. He also wanted His people to know that His death brought them life. And so He calls His people to trust in Him who was the light that they might receive adoption as sons and begin to learn how to walk in the light. And so, i, I got to ask some of these questions. Where are you in this? Are you in the darkness? Then come to the light. Believe 
in Christ who is the light. Are you already in the light? Then I encourage you to continue to walk by faith in Christ as a child of the light. Move on in the enjoyment of your salvation. Grow in its expression in your life. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that uh, your Spirit would be at work. That hearing these things, we would ponder these things. But not just ponder them, but that we would respond to them in faith. That these things are true and that these are the things I'm banking my life on. These are the hopes I have. Apart from the work of your Spirit, we won't do this. We will just hear a rumbling noise like the crowd did. So have mercy on us. Plant your word deep in our hearts that it may spring forth with much fruit. We thank you for Jesus. Who was that original seed who died that he might bear much fruit? We thank you for Jesus who willingly went to his death that he might give us life. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has overcome our enemies. We thank you for Jesus who makes us like he is. We thank you for Jesus, who is our hope and our salvation, the author and perfecter of our faith, the captain of our salvation. We indeed thank you for Jesus, our shepherd, who keeps us safe in his hand. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.